weekly and every year a full summary of what we believe as Christians, but we also do it because those of us who have been Christians longer need constant reminders. I can't express to you strongly enough how often the Bible feels the need to remind us. Remember is one of the great exhortations of the Bible, and so one of the ways we remember is we review. And so we're going to do that this morning. Um, The question is, uh, what is prayer? And the answer, as you can see, is prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. Now, I think that's a pretty simple answer, and so I just want to draw your attention to the fact that petition, to ask for the things you need, that's, that's the basic beginning of all prayer. That's the one that even children naturally lean into and do. It's the one that even sometimes atheists and agnostics are driven to in times of deep need. Uh, But if your prayer life only subsists there, then you're missing out on the depths of what God has available to you in prayer. And so my question for you this morning, just in simple review, is of the other three that are listed, of praising God in prayer. And if you look at the prayers that are prayed in the Bible, you'll see that praise, just articulating who God is, his goodness and his glory, is a significant part of the vocabulary of the prayers recorded for us in scriptures. Of course, the Psalms are full of this. Um, And one of the things that it does when we pray like that is not only do we write tell God who he is, which is an act of worship. God says, I am, and we say, yes, you are. But we also reshape and reformat our own understanding of God. We strengthen our own understanding, the one that is active even when we aren't in the midst of prayer and are just going through the motions of our life. Uh, Confession of sin is the recognition that uh, if you're a Christian here this morning, you didn't just used to need Jesus. You still need him day by day by day. Jesus says to his disciples when he's washing their feet, not just creating this act of service, but actually making a metaphor for what we need. Peter at first is resistant. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter says, well, then wash all of me, Jesus. And he says, the one who has been fully bathed doesn't need to be washed again. He just needs to cleanse his feet. In a similar way, we as Christians have fully in Jesus Christ by trusting in his work for our salvation, full and complete forgiveness. We've had the total bath. That's why we do baptism. We are fully clean, but we still encounter and endure as we walk through life uh, a a dirtying, a need to confess, a need for forgiveness. Um, And so that is a Part, uh, that should be a part of our daily practice in prayer. And side note, that means that you should actually be reflectively reviewing your life and asking, where does my heart not align with God's today? Where is my worship bound up in other things instead of God today? Um, because I think the, the main reason we don't confess our sin more often is because we don't think we need to. Um, but trust me, you need to. Uh, And then finally, Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving, of course, is recognizing what God has already done in your life and responding to it. Now, notice that there's a little bit of a cycle there uh, from petition to Thanksgiving, okay? 
When God, when we need from God, we ask him for what we need. When he provides, we thank him for what he has given. In the same way with confession, we confess our sins and then we need to move beyond that into embracing the forgiveness in Jesus Christ, which should drive us back into a place of worship. Okay, and so my point is here there is a, a relationship between these four ideas and it should be symbiotic, it should be cyclical, it should draw you in and out of these phases of prayer. My only exhortation to you this morning is which one do you need to focus on? Which one is not as well-worn a tool as the others? Which one do you tend to neglect? And it can be a different one for all sorts of reasons. If you're a perfectionist, looking at your own needs of, uh, in terms of sin and failure is difficult. If you are a complainer, then the habit of thanksgiving is not only hard for you, but custom fit for you. Uh, if you are the type who is very practical and down to earth, you may think praise is a closed door, but like every other muscle in your life, it grows through working it. And so I'd encourage you this morning to just select one and just lay it before the Lord and ask for his help and find a way, put it in your notes, put it on a sticky note on your dashboard in your car to just lean into growing in your prayer life. So I'd like to read the question again, and then I'd like you all to read the answer aloud with me. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God in praise, petition, confession of sin, and thanksgiving. Amen. All right, we're going to go ahead and get into our study this morning. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up to Mark chapter 10. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, don't worry about it. There's one in the back of the pew right in front of you. It's the black-bound book, and there's an index at the front that will help you find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. coming to the end this morning of this middle section, the centerpiece of the Gospel of Mark, which focuses on our lives as we follow Jesus. In fact, we'll finish this up next week, um, but what we've been seeing week after week after week is Jesus privately and sometimes pulling aside his disciples to instruct them on what it looks like for them to follow Jesus. Now, in the course of this, two times so far, Jesus has explicitly laid out where things are headed. He said, I am headed to Jerusalem, and when I get here, here's what's going to go down. And each time we've seen the disciples have responded both by being confounded, not understanding what Jesus could possibly mean, and then showing not only that they don't understand, but actively that they are expecting something else, shooting for something else, that they still need to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're going to see that this happens for a third and final time this morning. Okay. These three foretellings of Jesus' death are what stitch this whole section together and prepare us for what happens next, which is the actual telling of Jesus' death. Um, but as we look at it this morning, 
what we're going to be focusing on um, is how authority should be understood and operated in within those who follow Jesus. And so read with me here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they, that's the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, our status quo natural setting is to put ourselves first, to seek our own glory, to build our own kingdom. But I ask this morning that you would give us a new vision, that when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, a life lived for others and a death died for us, that it would recalibrate that fact and that we would see if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to walk a different road. I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to come and to bring conviction on our hearts where there are still semblances of that old way of life, where the things we pursue are still contrary to the character of Jesus and the kingdom of God. We ask that you would do something new, something better, something greater in us, Lord. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, there's this jarring incongruence between Jesus and the disciples. Notice that as it opens, they're on the road, they're headed to Jerusalem, and it says here that Jesus was walking out in front. Now, even when we have tried to portray the life of Jesus cinematically, that's not really what we think of, right? Jesus was always in the midst of the people. He was always compassionately listening with others. He was always touching and praying for and bringing healing. He was always right there in the thick of it. And here he's off and alone. It's out of character. It makes the disciples uncomfortable. 
They don't really know what to do with it. It's clear here that they don't understand what's going to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, despite him laying it out explicitly multiple times. What they're bothered here is by an ominous atmosphere. And it's not just the disciples who can feel it. All the crowds that are still following Jesus and walking with him, they feel it as well. And so it's a mixture, it says, of awe and fear. They see Jesus off in the distance. They see his demeanor. Although it comes to a place where Jesus is alone in a garden and praying and despairing and crying out to God, it's starting to be present here. What will break out in sweat of blood through tremendous stress is already starting to show on his features now. And I would suggest to you that when he, uh, there in verse 32, took the twelve, calls those who are closest to him, and lays out what's about to happen, part of the reason is because he doesn't want to be alone in what comes next. He goes to the twelve as his closest companions, as his friends, as John said, as the disciples whom Jesus loved. And he invites them into the suffering that he's about to endure. But they don't understand. They don't get it. And the thing that happens next is two of those same disciples come with an agenda that shows not just how out of tune they are with what's about to happen, but how out of tune they are with Jesus at all. Now, three times Jesus has laid out what's going to happen Prophetically, he's laid out where things are headed, and it's an interesting thing to go back and compare them, because they're not all exactly the same. Jesus hasn't been rehearsing a prophetic speech, and he just, you know, presses the play button on what he's already mentally recorded, and it just exhibits itself. What's new in this one uh, is two things. One, specifically, this is the first time where Jesus says, what's going to go down is the Jews, my own people, are going to hand me over to the Gentiles. Okay. Now remember that Israel is living under the thumb of Rome, and they're not really happy about that. They don't like the Romans, so handing one of their own over to the Romans to do what they will is a despising, a rejection. In fact, this one emphasizes shame more than the others, and so look at verse 34. It says, once the Son of Man is handed over, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Shame is where Jesus is headed. Death and rejection is where Jesus is headed. Suffering, obviously, is where Jesus is headed. But again, he lays out that this is where he's going, but that's not where he stops. And so he finishes in 34 and says, after three days, he will rise. He lays everything on the table in advance, everything that's about to go down. And then verse 35, James and John. Now remember, as it says here, these are the sons of Zebedee. They come from a fishing family. Uh, they are brothers, and they are also part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus had the twelve, but there was also the three. And when Jesus, for example, heals the centurion's daughter, he leaves nine of his disciples outside the house, as well as all the crowds, and he only takes Peter and James and John inside. When Jesus goes up on the mountain and is transfigured and they see him in his full-bodied glory, it is only Peter and James and John who were there. Okay? They are Jesus' inner circle, and apparently they've noticed. And so they come here, 
And what they're thinking in their mind, despite Jesus saying uh, constantly to the contrary, is when we get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to set up a kingdom. He's going to be the new moral order. He's going to kick out the Romans and set up this promised kingdom that we've been anticipating. And we have front row seats. And so they come and they say, we want the most premier seats, Jesus. We want to sit on your right hand and on your left. And understand, that's not just about proximity. That's about position. That's the closest seat in power. It's about power itself. It's about authority. To the right hand is the equivalent in the American government of the vice president, right? The closest advisor, the number two. And the number three positions are what they are asking for. Now, notice the way they go about it, because in looking at the disciples here, as I've mentioned over and over again, Mark isn't just telling us what happened. In fact, it's a little bit interesting, isn't it, that these men are the ones that the foundation of our trust in what actually happened with Jesus are based? That these are the ones who go out to carry the message? They are, uh, like Paul calls them, the foundation of the house that Jesus is building called the church. And yet when we look at them in the Gospel of Mark, they're not great people. They're obtuse. They're, they're filled with infighting. They're selfish and self-promoting. And I'll tell you what's going to happen next. They're going to completely fail Jesus. In fact, Mark's Gospel ends with them still confounded in his failures. Now, obviously, Mark isn't writing this to discount these people. He knows the rest of the story. He knows that the men who we see here are not the men that we see in the book of Acts, that there's something about what happens in the gospel. And Jesus has promised to pour out the spirit that transforms these men, people like this, into the apostles. But more importantly, he tells us this story because he wants us to see us in their shoes. This whole section on discipleship is not for the disciples. They lived it. It's for us, those who also would like to follow Jesus. And so what I would encourage you to do with me this morning is allow yourself to recognize you in the disciples. Instead of holding them off at a distance and saying, man, I can't believe how ridiculous they are, we need to recognize that this is about as human and as relatable as it gets. And so I want you to notice how they open this plan. Obviously, they've got an agenda. But notice how they open it. They don't just say it. They say in verse 35, they came and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like when a child comes up to you and says, Will you promise to say yes to what I'm about to ask you? Right? That, that's the only way to understand what's going on here. Now, Jesus has constantly made himself available to the disciples. He's taught that he cares about them. Uh, it's why the New Testament can go on to say that we can cast our cares upon Jesus because he cares for us. Coming to Jesus with our petitions is not wrong. However, I want you to notice who they want to be in the driver's seat of their life. They come and they say, we already have a plan. We already know what we need, and all we need is your power to provide it. Okay. And here's the thing is, if we're going to understand how these things work in our life, what it looks like to follow Jesus, that word follow takes the priority. It defines the relationship. They don't want what Jesus wants for them. They want Jesus to give what they want. And here's the thing. I mentioned earlier in the catechism how petition, asking for what we need, is the beginning impulse of all prayer. 
But what we have to understand is that God didn't provide Jesus to help us build our kingdoms. And as much as the disciples know the prophecies, as much as they're right to understand there's thrones coming and glory and ruling and all those things, it's clear here what they're really interested in is their own thing. Okay? And we do the same, don't we? We come and we have a plan. We say the good life looks like this. My ambition is to be here. If only I could just be this place, have this position, express this power, have this applause. And so we pray. And we pray in the form of petitions. God, help me to get. God, open doors for my ambition. God, work out a way so that I can have what I need. And then I'll give you the glory. Give me the Oscar and I'll... I'll say it was all glory to God, right? But there's a misunderstanding here. Again, God didn't send Jesus to build our own kingdoms, but to offer us a better one. Okay. And that better one is a little bit counterintuitive. Because what's it going to look like for Jesus? It's going to look hard. It's going to look shameful. It's going to look suffering. And he constantly reminds those who follow him that that is an unavoidable consequence of following him. That as they treated the master, so they will also treat the servant. That in this world, you will have tribulation. I heard someone say this week that pain is a necessary component of change. That we're just wired that way. It's an essential factor. But we're not very fond of pain, are we? But if God's goal is not just to give you something, but to make you something, then the pain that's part of the process is inevitable. But it's not one we usually choose for ourselves. We resonate with the temptation that happens to Jesus when Satan comes and he says, just one little compromise, just bow down to me and you can bypass all of the suffering, all of the cross, and I'll just give you the kingdoms now. His disciples are thinking the same thing. But I want you to notice that even though they're doing kingdom work, it's Jesus who's in the center throne, and they are just taking thrones number two and three. It's really about their kingdom. It's really about their glory. It's really about their authority and power and position. That's what they're after. And so they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you were asking. He says, you don't get it, do you? Notice how this foretelling of Jesus' death, again, emphasis is on shame. And all they can think about is the glory. Now, it's not, again, that there isn't a glory, and not just a glory past the cross, because there's a resurrection and an exaltation. Like it says in Philippians, he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given the name that's above every name. It's not just that they have to go through suffering to get there. It's also that the suffering is defining of the nature of the kingdom. Have you ever thought about this before? That God's chosen way to enthrone Jesus Christ is the way of the cross. The God who is sovereign and omnipotent and who always executes his plans designs salvation to go through these means. It means it doesn't just show us the path to glory, it defines the glory. It shapes it. He says we're headed towards shame. The, they say we're headed towards glory. 
He says, we want the throne to the right and the left. Jesus knows the only people to the right and the left will be hanging on a cross just like him. They don't get it. They don't understand what's coming. Notice the question he asks. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? He uses two images there, and he's intentionally ambiguous here. When you look at the cup in Jewish understanding in the Old Testament, the contents of the cup determines if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Right? We understand that. There are cups you get excited about and cups you're not excited about. Think of that that one liter bottle you see in the bushes, right? You don't know. It's the same in the Old Testament. So in the Psalms, David can say, my cup overflows, right? My life is full of blessing. It's a picture of abundance. But the Old Testament also speaks of the cup of suffering, the cup of the judgment of God, the cup of God's wrath. In fact, when Jesus prays in the garden, let this cup pass from me, that's what he's talking about. He knows that what he's about to endure is not just physical suffering, but the full totality of consequence of sin. The full righteous wrath of God. And he says, if there's any other way, I don't want to drink that cup. And so the disciples hear what they want to hear. Can you drink the cup that I drink? And then he says, can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized in? Baptism is a picture of identification. Basically, he says, can you become a participant with me? Can you be identified with me, conform to me? Can you join in with me and go through what I'm going through? They already know how baptism works because they've been baptized, connected to Jesus, aligned with his ministry. And in their minds, they think again that that's aligned with glory. But there is another image in the Psalms, and that's one of drowning, right? The psalmist says, your waves have crashed over to me. My suffering has raised up to my very neck. That's what Jesus is talking about. And the two go hand in hand. There is no cup one without cup two. There is no baptism of glory without a baptism of suffering. Jesus lays out, he's already told them what's coming, and he says, are you able Now, I'd like to suggest something deeper here. Jesus is not just saying, again, these things are for now. That stuff is for later. Those positions on the cross to the left and to the right of Jesus were open. They were available. They had the opportunity to stand with Jesus, to courageously identify with Jesus, to die with Jesus. But did they really want it? Were they really up to it? In fact, it's profound, isn't it, that one of the random criminals crucified next to Jesus, right there, turns to the man who's dying next to him and says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Incredible faith. Incredible faith to watch someone bleeding out next to you and going, this truly is God's promised Messiah. He's going to bring about the kingdom. And he makes, doesn't he? He makes a similar request than James and John makes but he makes it right there, hanging on the cross next to him. But where are the disciples? Scattered, afraid, denying him, hiding. But notice how they answer. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? Verse 39, they said to him, we're able. Here's another thing about the active pursuing in our life of position and power. 
we assume we can take it. We assume we can handle it. There's a goodness in the way that God works. And that goodness is that he doesn't overload us with things that will destroy us. But we do. We do it all the time. We throw ourselves onto the stages of history. We put ourselves up front. We nominate ourselves. We raise our hands. We say, I can do it. And then we start fueling our future on the altar of sacrifice. And we throw our families on it. And we throw our friendships on it. And we begin to decay and corrupt. And what's inside us starts to come outside. And then we, you know, spin. And then we control what things look like. And then we hide. And these types of things Are we even interested in asking God, what am I capable of? What am I able to do? What are you calling me to do? But they're convinced they're ready for this. Now notice he says, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. This is not just be careful what you wish for. He's recognizing the reality of what's coming. Remember, Jesus chose these 12 men and has yet to reject them in all of their obtuseness. He knows that they're going to fail. What does he tell Peter? He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but when you're restored, when you're restored, when you're put back together, then you work for me. Jesus knows not just his own personal future. He knows the personal future of each one of these people. And he knows that James and John in particular are going to endure tremendous suffering just like Jesus did and do it willingly. He's not going to have to hold them down and say, this is for your own good. But they will actively choose to put themselves in harm's way. In fact, James, James is the first of the apostles to die for Jesus. He only makes it to Acts chapter 12 as he's put to death by Herod. And John, he's the last living apostle, banished to Patmos, enduring an entire life of suffering for Jesus. And again, they do it willingly. Even that should not just give us hope, but it should make us wonder why. We should go, what changed? What's different? But notice what happens next. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why are they angry? Because James and John thought of it first. Because they jumped the queue, right? Because they had been arguing about who is the greatest forever, but James and John had the initiative to try and seal the deal. This is not just a James and John problem. It exists in all of the 12. And this is one of the places that shows our own glory-focused, selfish, power-hungry selves the best. What happens when you get passed over? What happens when you look at someone who you know doesn't deserve the position? What is your response? Is that jealousy altruistic? Is it really just anger for the sake of the company? We have to watch out for this. We have to recognize uh, that there is a greatness that Jesus talks about. There is a way that the church is supposed to work that rejoices with those who rejoice. Which means in the context of the church that when one is lifted up, we celebrate that together. 
but often we find in our hearts a tremendous amount of jealousy. And so the ten are indignant, they're angry, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And he points to another problem here, which is that the disciples know what it's like to be oppressed. What rulers is he talking about here? He says the Gentiles, the non-Jewish rulers. He's talking about the Romans. And the Romans rule with an iron thumb. What the disciples are imagining is just a reversal of roles. That now they're going to be on the one at the top. They're going to be the oppressors. They're going to be the ones with all the power. But do you see how that doesn't get us anywhere? If Jesus' goal is to redeem the earth, then the earth has to change. And this is why throughout history, a change of leadership doesn't change a nation. This is why the great revolutionists who fight for freedom sometimes become the great dictators. This is why communism never, ever works. E.K. Chesterton says that in Mary's prayer, when the angel tells her she's going to have a baby who will be the Messiah, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. What she says in that prayer he picks up on and that it is uh, that he is going to overthrow the proud and exalt the humble. And he said, we as human beings are all about the first one and we always neglect the second. We overthrow the proud and then we exalt the proud. In fact, we exalt ourselves, which is pride. A change has to happen, not just a change in leadership, but a change in the character of the leaders, a change in the orientation of the leaders. The disciples know best what it looks like to be oppressed and all they want to do is be on the other side to just flip everything over. He says here that the Gentiles lord it over them. He says, you know how authority normally goes. It's about privilege. It's about, it's about you know, getting things done and specifically my things. It's about taking from what's beneath you to accomplish your goals. And they're like, yeah, sign us up. We want that role. He says, and the great ones exercise authority over them. That word exercise should make you think of flexing muscles, right? The idea here is not that they're just in a position of authority. It's that they love to use it. They have that voice. They have the rule book. They have, you know, the threats that come with business. They get the job done primarily by enforcing their authority. Now, again, some of us think that's what will change our family or that's what will change our company, or that's what will change the world. We just need to have the right person flexing that power, and that person is me. Just give me the reins, and I will get everything in line, and we will accomplish our goals, and we will, you know, have great dividends, or whatever it is. And that's the way the world works. That's why we have metaphors that are all animalistic, right? The rat race. Right? Dog eat dog. Okay. You gotta be a little subhuman to get things done. That's the message of the world, you know, it's why we say that only cream and bastards rise. 
But notice what Jesus says in 43 to his disciples as they gather, but it shall not be so among you. To follow Jesus as representatives of his kingdom is not an abandonment of authority, but it is a redefinition. It does have to think in a different way. It is not to be this way among us, and it grieves me to know how often it is this way among us. It grieves me when I talk with people who tell me about past histories with churches where the pastor ruled with a rod of iron, where his way always dominated. But it also grieves me how often I find that in myself. We all know personally the damage that authority brings. And Jesus just says in the church it should be different. And I want you to understand here, it's, it's different for us in the context of the church, meaning the church operates differently, and it's different for us as the church in the context of the rest of your life. You can't just split your life and say, in the church we operate this way, but I have to do my job at work, but I have to get my family in order, but this other thing that I'm doing, I have to do it, and this is the only thing that works. Jesus didn't just call you, call you to follow him on Sundays, but Monday through Friday and Saturday too. He didn't call you just to follow it in the context of a loving Christian community, but to follow him into the fringes of your life as a representative of him. So it has to look differently. What does it look like? He says, it should not be like that among you, but he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He redefines greatness here because the truth is, authority and greatness go hand in hand. And he doesn't rebuke them for that aspiration of greatness, but he does redefine it. And he says, if you want to be great among the church, you must learn to be a servant. And you need to watch out here because there's a cheap uh, knockoff version of this, which basically says the way to get on top is to slave your way there, right? This is the unpaid internship on Wall Street. I will get your coffee. I will do what's necessary. You can put your boot firmly on my face. And when I'm on top, I will do the same. And that will be my privilege. And that will be my power. But what he's saying here is not that. He is, again, redefining both our treatment of other people. First, the issue isn't here how many people are serving you. But how many people are you serving? And again, watch out here, just because you can count a significant roster of employees underneath you, it doesn't necessarily change this paradigm. It does change an orientation, and the thing is, when you look at servant leadership, this is not Jesus' idea, but the biblical ideal going all the way into the Old Testament. That's why all the rulers are referred to as shepherds. Shepherds were to serve the sheep. The idea of authority in the Bible is one of responsibility. In other words, this idea when it says a servant must be a servant, the idea here is that those who work for you, actually you work for them. It means that you should be ambitiously desiring to leave them better than you found them. It means that you should be thinking collectively for the whole organization, not for your bottom line. There is no justified golden parachute in the kingdom of God. There's no abandoning the company and getting as much out of it as you can. There's no taking the big bonus when you know that some people are having a hard time having enough to make ends meet. 
but in all levels, in every area where we find in our lives a position, the position should be oriented towards service, not just of the world at the sake or at the expense of those who we're working with, but serving them as well. And the word here for service is to deacon. It's where we get this word from, diakonos. But in the, in the ancient world, it basically means to wait tables. In other words, the world presents this way of moving towards authority which has to climb on the shoulders of others, steps on others to work their way up the human period, uh, pyramid, not period. But for us as Christians, greatness is lifting others up, stooping beneath them, and raising the company upon our shoulders, raising the family upon our shoulders. And again, we see this in every level of society. Jesus is going to go on and he basically says, if you're going to lead, leadership should look like me. And what did it look like for me? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, side note, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But you're not called to give your life as a ransom for many. That's unique to Jesus. Only he could pay the cost of other people's salvation. But it does create a paradigm. And that's why within the context of the family, Paul says, husbands, love your wife as Christ does the church and lay your life down for her. He identifies the husband as the head of the family. And he's taking a pretty common image, one that Caesar used of himself. I am the head, Rome, you are the body, but he reverses the way it works and he says the head should die for the body. Do you understand how that breaks the metaphor? If you're going to be shot, what part of the body do you put in front of the bullet? Not the head. And that was the thinking of Roman Empire was protect the head, serve the head, love the head. And Paul says, head, love the body, sacrifice for the body, die for the body. Why? Because that's the church. The head of the church died for the body. It redefines things. But this isn't just about authority structures. This isn't just a reinterpretation of these things. It's, again, an orientation we have towards all people. So listen to John's words. This John, listen to his words in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, John reflecting on what, what is future for Jesus is now past. Where Jesus was looking forward and says, I'm going to a cross, John is looking backward and saying, let us remember the cross of Christ. And this is what he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He says, authority is a subcategory of love. He says, in the same way that Jesus loved us and we know what love is because Christ laid his life down for us, so also we ought to lay the life down for one another. And just in case you assume that that's only big and sacrificial, take a bullet for someone else, he goes on and look at what he says. He says in the next verse here in 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. 
It reorients the way we serve other people through this window of love. In other words, greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by service because the full and total feature of what the kingdom of God is about is love, which is others-focused, which seeks the good of the other, which doesn't consider its own ambition but to be a servant. In fact, back in Mark, Jesus pushes it further. He says, the first must be a, uh, a servant... Great among you must be a servant, verse 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, he doubles down on the language there. You can be a free man and a deacon, right? You can, you can be a person of status and wait tables. In fact, I knew a waiter one time who believed, uh, believed that tips were the best way to be wealthy, who wore $600 boots and worked 80 hours across three different restaurants. He never saw waiting tables as a you know, a limitation on his status, but a way to achieve it. But when he says here a slave, this is doulos. This is belonging to someone else. This is not determining your own fate. This is subject to the mistreatment of others. It is all those things. And Jesus holds it up and he says, this is what it looks like to be first. And one of the things that I love about this is when Jesus defines greatness and authority here, he does it in a way that's equal opportunity. For you to be a servant and a slave, you don't need to preemptively have power. You don't need to come from money. You don't need the best education that money can buy. You don't have to be tremendously gifted or talented. It's relatively easy to serve other people. It's a posture and not a talent. To be slave, to put yourself in such... A place, and, and the truth is that this is not just the way to leadership, it is the prerequisite of leadership because it's the job description. If you aspire towards leadership and you mean it as a follower of Christ, then you aspire to serve, to serve more people, to impact in a greater way, to increase the possibility of love. And notice what it says in verse 45. For even. You see that word even? For even the son of man. In other words, all authority takes the shape of the primary authority. Right? He says the reason it works this way is because the one you work for. Because nobody is going to outrank Jesus. Right? And so he at the head shapes the whole. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus spent his entire life for others. Every day getting up in the morning, only retreating to be filled with power so that he could pour it out for other people. Constantly meeting requests. Why did he teach the people when they gathered? Because he had compassion upon them. He was focused on other people. Why does he select these 12? To love them well. To instruct them and teach them. To care for them. To see them grow and to change. And of course that all culminates in the cross of Christ where Jesus doesn't die for his friends. But for his enemies. For all of us. All human beings, those who had rebelled against God, those are the ones that Jesus, being God, taking on the form of a servant, died for. But there's also a little bit of a jarring surprise here we don't always catch. When he says here, the Son of Man, Jesus is using his favorite title for himself. 
but it's not one that he made up. He's drawing it from the Old Testament like all the other terms for the Messiah. And this one comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7. Now listen to this. If you want to understand why the disciples had a hard time wrapping their head around Jesus' coming suffering, this is the key right here. This is a vision that Daniel has, and it's a vision of one like the Son of Man. It's where this language that Jesus uh, uses comes from. And so notice what it says here in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's right in the defining verse of what it means to be the son of man, that he came and he was going to get everything so that everything might serve him. But here he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Again, there's a recalibration going on here. There's a missing component. It's not that we thought it was this and it's actually this. It's that we didn't fully understand this. It's that what God was going to do as he enthroned Jesus was going to be through a path of service, through a path of suffering. In fact, notice what it says in verse 45 again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, three times Jesus has told us, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He is yet to tell us why. In fact, I would suggest to you that this verse, Mark 10, 45, is probably the best key verse for the whole gospel. It's the pivot for the whole thing, okay? We've seen the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve, and we've seen it extensively. But what we're going to do in two weeks as we move on from this section of the gospel is we're going to watch as the Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. We've known where things are headed, but now Jesus tells us why, and it's because, and this is what shapes our activity, it's because the kingdom of God is redemptive. It's not protective, it doesn't just lie a boundary and say, we are the good people. We are the righteous. You are the wicked. It's outward oriented. It's a nation that pursues its growth through conversion, through redemption, through seeing people change, through taking not just the oppressed and setting them free, but setting free the oppressor as well. Giving his life as a ransom the idea here is one of redemption, of paying a tremendous cost to bring freedom. That's what the image means. And this is such good news. It's good news because the character of the kingdom of God, if it's just descriptive or if it's just prescriptive, and it just says, hey, stop being so selfish. Stop being so ambitious. Stop pursuing your own greatness and building your own kingdom. It's telling a drowning man to swim. Those things go deep in our hearts, deeper than we would like to confess. But Christ came that you might be freed up from that to the better way, to the path of love, so that we would be transformed in his image and not just see a new way of life, but be that new way of life. That's why it's so significant that Jesus doesn't just offer us forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit. 
the empowering presence of God to change us in the midst. God is making rebellious and, uh, and uh, enemy people his children. And he's transforming their character from their character to the character of God. But it also defines for us not just who Christ's followers are. That's what John says. If you don't love in a similar way to Jesus does, how do you know that the love of God is actually in you? If you don't see this orientation playing out in your life, how do you know that the change on the inside that causes it is really there? If you're lacking the fruit in your life, how do you know that a new seed has been born in your heart? But also, if you see these things in your life, there's more available for you. Like these disciples, you may look at yourself and find again afresh, anew, a heart of ambition and selfishness this morning, and again you can take it to the cross. Again you can confess it and ask for something better. And again Jesus will apply that redemptive work to your life. And so it is both cleansing and calling. I don't know where you find position or power or authority in your present life or in your future. I don't know where you're operating with other people as a leader. I don't know where you hope to get in your life. But where you are right now, as a follower of Christ, will shape every decision along the way. It won't just determine what you say yes and no to, it will determine what happens after you say yes. It'll shape every decision that follows, the small decisions of the doing of every day. And what I would tell you here is that this calling towards greatness through service is an open opportunity for you every day to choose others, to choose to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and not seek to be served but to serve. And honestly, I love this because ultimately becoming like Christ is worship. Defining God's goodness and then seeing it formed in our own life is worship. And I love that because it means at any given moment you can look at the people around the room and say, what's one thing I could do right now to serve him or her or them? How do you think service becomes the heart and focal point of your life? One act at a time. You can do that today. You can do that with the people in this room. Every time you have an opportunity to act as an authority, you can choose the power and the privilege or the path of service. You can choose to use people to get the job done or you can invest in people. One looks like Jesus. One is a step forward in the Christian life. One reflects the undeniable desirable character of Christ. When Jesus says that we should be salt and light, salt and light looks like service and love. When he says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden, a group of people that functions in this way, constantly putting other people's needs before their own, operating as a family should be, it's undeniable, it's compelling, it's attractive. But it's also just plain good. Listen, there's a promise that Jesus made that Paul tells us about that I don't think we always believe. And the only way to know if Jesus' words are true is to test them. 
And this is what he says. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You'll be happier, he says, in a life of giving than getting. And remember that Jesus is speaking from personal experience as the greatest giver of the greatest gift to the undeserved, to the ungrateful. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, this is how Jesus views you. Worth dying for. He came not to be served. He's not just demanding your allegiance, although he is. He's offering his life for yours. That ransom is available to you wherever your convictions are, whatever your sins are, whatever you think is unredeemable in your life. Try handing it to the great redeemer. It's open and available to you. He didn't just die for us. He died for you. Let's pray. Father, George MacDonald says that Jesus didn't come and die to spare us from suffering. He came to make our suffering like his, redemptive. And I know, Lord, we have a tendency to crawl off the altar. I know we have a tendency to choose life, to choose self-preservation, to seek to gain the whole world and lose our soul. I know that we long for the power and the security that comes with being on top. I know we long for the greatness that comes with a position of significance. But Lord, our significance and our power comes from you. And so we can be the weak and we can be the foolish and we can take the place of the servant and the slave knowing that what is the foolishness of man is the power of God towards salvation. We can constantly lay down our lives knowing that every crucifixion is followed by a resurrection. We can give fully and freely without reservation because nothing we have that really matters can be taken from us. And so we can give without fear. I pray, Lord, that you would reorient us towards a life of loving and serving others. Even humanitarian efforts have a tendency towards dictatorship, towards abuse of employees, and then it justifies it for the greater good of the masses. But Lord, you call us to a better way. A way where we stoop down and lay our lives down on behalf of those who work with us, who work under us, who are under our responsibility and care. I pray, Lord, we'd be captivated by this, renewed by it, that it would define what love is, and that we would lean into the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and the Holy Spirit and seek to express this in our own lives. Lord, help us to be a church of servants, ready and willing to raise our hands and volunteer, and not just for official needs, Lord, but for the unofficial and regular ones. Lord, give us the eyes of a servant that don't have to be asked, that just see something that needs doing and does it. 
which is just simply saying, Lord, let us be a great church. We ask for your help in this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we respond this morning, we'll continue to worship God, and another thing we'll do is